Hey everyone, today on the Doomsday Preppers Guide to the Podcast. Today on the Doomsday Preppers Guide to the End, we are going to be talking about cars. And as you know, a car is a road vehicle, typically with four wheels powered by an internal combustible engine that is able to carry a small number of people. I'm just kidding. Cars is actually a Disney movie about this red car that comes to the... Okay, I'm kidding. To car stands for the critical analysis and reasoning skills for the MCAT. Cars is different than the other portions of the MCAT. The cars section of the MCAT deals mostly with your your analytical reading and verbal listening skills, comprehension skills. What this means is that on the exam, you're going to be given a bunch of passages and you're going to be asked questions about them. There used to be an essay portion, but I guess everyone at the AAMC was really lazy and they just stopped wanting to read essays. Plus, essays are kind of subjective, but they're actually not if you're not a douchebag. Anyway, so today's going to be pretty quick. We're going to talk about the car section and then also straight to chapter two, which is analyzing rhetoric. So the MCAT contains passages. These passages have multiple paragraphs and your job is to actively read and critically think about them and then answer questions that follow and there are a ton of topics that it could undergo but the topics are mostly going to be in the humanities and the social sciences so you're going to read things on architecture on art on dance on ethics on literature music philosophy popular culture religion studies of diverse cultures and theater for social sciences you're going to be reading about anthropology archaeology economics education Education, geography, history, linguistics, political science, population health, population health, and psychology, sociology, and studies of diverse cultures. Next, you're going to have to answer questions about the passages you just read. And the AAMC has defined three categories of questions in the CARS section of the MCAT. The first type of question is the foundations of comprehension. Do you understand what you're reading? The second one is the reasoning within the text. Can you read between the lines? And the third one is reasoning beyond the text. Can you see the consequences of what you're reading? Can you understand the implications of them? Because I can't. No, I'm kidding. So that defines the entire structure of the car section of the MCAT. And that concludes our review of the car section of the MCAT for this entire podcast. I'm kidding. So next, we're going to be analyzing rhetoric. What is rhetoric? Well, if you've paid attention to the presidential elections of 2016 and the current one we're about to have in 2020, you will know that rhetoric is the art of effective or persuasive speaking or writing, especially the use of figures of speech and other compositional techniques. Rhetoric is also language designed to have a persuasive or impressive effect on its audience, but often regarded as lacking in sincerity or meaningful context. This was defined by Google. Anyway, so what did rhetoric even does? You know, rhetoric is actually more complex than we'd like to give it. When I say we, I mean me. So with rhetoric, you can explain the importance of what someone is saying. You can understand the rhetorical situation of something. You can understand the author. At times, you can even analyze parts of rhetoric and come to understand the audience that that rhetoric is directed to. For example, the rhetoric at a Donald Trump rally is going to be really different from the rhetoric at a Joe Biden rally, which is also going to be different from the rhetoric at an an evangelical rally and also a flat earther rally and also a rally at NASA or something like that. So rhetoric is really important because it contains messages, sometimes even subliminal messages like Illuminati shit. I'm kidding. But it does contain messages and all rhetoric has a goal and it all has contact. So what does that even mean? It means that when you're given information by a news media or something, there's a goal for that information to be given to you. Now, there might be multiple goals 
and there might be multiple contexts, contexts, but the MCAT prep book defines rhetoric as the art of effective communication, both in speech and in text. Rhetorical analysis is the examination of this speech and writing, and it goes beyond the understanding of what the author is saying. And together, these things make up something called a rhetorical knowledge. So there are some key components of rhetoric. One is a rhetorical situation, and that's a way of representing any act of communication, emphasizing the transmission of ideas from an individual to an audience. So people who are effective at rhetoric, they will direct their messages to a particular subset of people with a clear goal in mind. So think of this, to whom are they addressing it to and why? Now the author, in the most basic sense, it's an individual or group writing the text. And the author can be distinguished by how much expertise they have on the topic that they're writing or how passionate or invested they are on that topic. Authors who are an expert in that topic, they know their intended audience. And this audience is usually knowledgeable in a certain area of information that the author is trying to convey. And what do you call things that are really technical and specific? You call that jargon. And every field has jargon to it. Or in a more jargonistic way of saying things, every academic discipline contains its own unique application of linguistic indices that can be used to alter the perception of change through an audience's preferential biases. What the fuck does that even mean? I don't even know. I just basically said that what I just said earlier. Jargon is just special words or expressions used by some kind of profession or professional, and it might be difficult for other people to understand it. A lot of times people use jargon when they want to confuse the shit out of you because they're losing an argument. So I just went on Google and the archaic definition of jargon is a form of language regarded as barbarous, debased, or hybrid. I don't even know what that means. Even the archaic definition of jargon is full of jargon. Other examples of jargon can be in the sciences, such as genomic sequencing, transcriptional repression, transcriptome, Zertuin, catabolism, gluconeogenesis, prefrontal cortex, hippocampus, the medial hippocampus, and etc. So you encounter jargon every day. Just read the terms and conditions of whenever you update your iPhone or Android. It's filled with fucking jargon. Next, after the author, we talk about the audience. And an audience is defined as a person or a bunch of people whom the text or speech is intended for. So in daily life, when you talk to your friend having a conversation, your friend is considered the audience of that conversation. In publications, like in The Law of the attraction books, the audience there is all the people who believe in the law of attraction. Just like a biology textbook, the audience there would probably be just a bunch of college kids or a bunch of really smart high school kids taking AP classes or something like that. I, don't, I heard they don't even teach AP classes anymore, so it shows you how old I am. And most of the time, when you watch TV, when you hear a political speech or an advertisement, that audience is generally the general public. The general public will interpret what is given to them, usually very similarly, meaning that the bigger your audience is, the more general things you're saying are, because you want the interpretation to be applied to an overall large, specific population of people. Whereas, let's say you're talking to a patient, and you want them to lose weight, and you say, Joe? 
you gotta lose weight. Your lipids are off the charts. Like if I didn't know any better, I would mistake your blood for canola oil. That's how many lipids are in your blood right now. You need to lose weight. And that goes into something known as message. And the message means that it's just something that the author uses to contain what they want to say. So in the form of writing, the message could be a physical document. It could be a journal article, a book, an email. The message could be a propaganda video, a video for some company to get you to buy more radishes or rabbits, whatever comes first to your mind, or a song that you listen to, like a Taylor Swift song, on why you should feel sorry for her, because her life has been hard, actually. But we're not going to get into that. I'm a big Taylor Swift fan, but we won't get into that either, even though I want to, but we won't get into that. And then we have voice. Yes, just like this voice that you're listening to, this miraculously sexy voice. The voice is a unique style to the writer. When you write, there's something about it that just conveys the personality of the author. And the author's word choice, how they put the words together, can change their voice, but also how they subconsciously interpret themselves, their culture, how they view themselves, even their education level can affect their voice. So the voice of this podcast sounds pretty desperate all the time, but the voice of say a Netflix documentary where people are stuck on an island and they can't have sex for 30 days, that's more amazing, confounding, insightful. The very reason for my envious existence and everyone who owns a Netflix account, I mean, come on. Next, after voice, the message of the author can be placed into something called a genre. And a genre is just a category. A category is just a way to classify the material of your message. So we know some genre, like fiction, nonfiction, pop, gospel, biology, psychology, social sciences, humanities, engineering, pornography. These are all genres, and within these genres are more subsets of genres. And that's the beauty of the linguistic nature of humanity. So how does this beauty of linguistic nature of humanity even get delivered? It needs a delivery system, and that delivery system is called a medium. No, it's not that person that like sits with their tarot cards or has a crystal ball and then they get possessed by your uncle, by like your deceased uncle. And they're like saying that you should have thrown their ashes into the Mediterranean Sea, but you didn't really do it because it's still at your house and now they're going to haunt you for the rest of your life. No, that's not what medium is in this sense. A medium is just a delivery system. So when you watch TV, your TV is a medium. When you read a book, the book is a medium. When you hear a speech, the air is a medium. Well, in actuality, it's probably the teleprompter that the person is reading the speech off of. When you listen to the the radio and they're telling you to go buy more shaving cream, that's a medium. The radio is the medium. When you get an email saying that you're actually related to a Nigerian prince and they have $60 billion that they need to wire you, but all they need is your social security number, so why not give it to them? That's a medium. That email is a medium to richness, to prosperity, a better life, basically. And just like the scammer trying to scam you with the Nigerian prince email, there's a goal. The goal is the author's intended outcome. It's the effect that the author wants to produce with their message, with their writing, with their medium, with their genre. In some cases, the author just wants to inform the audience of why they need to buy more Law of Attraction books or why they need to give you your social security number for your Nigerian prince uncle. In other cases, they want to give you an opinion and they want you to believe that opinion. Like in the 60s, the tobacco companies wanted you to realize that correlation does not mean causation. Just because you smoke cigarettes doesn't mean you're 
going to get cancer, when actually you will get cancer, most likely. So that's the thing with goals and rhetoric and messages. The author can just recount impartial facts. Like just because we breathe oxygen, oxygen's good for you. So buy these cans of pure oxygen. Well, little do you know, pure oxygen causes cellular toxicity and cellular damage and it actually kills cells. So don't buy pure oxygen from an oxygen salesman if he ever comes your way. And yes, I'm talking to you. You know exactly who you are. Don't buy pure oxygen. Sometimes the goal is also to evoke an emotional response. Like the Patriots are the best football team ever to exist. And anyone who doesn't believe that is a chicken horse. And as you can tell right now, I'm the author of this podcast, and my tone is helping to establish the goal of this work, this quote-unquote written work, even though I'm actually freeballing it, there's no teleprompter in front of me. And the tone reflects the author's attitude towards the subject matter. And as you can tell, my tone has been really great. And how do you determine tone in the context of writing? Well, you just have to examine the words that are being used and consider the question, what imagery or feelings do these words convey? So this book places an emphasis on no matter what you do, no matter how persuasive or evocative, evocative? Shit, I don't know. How tempting your words are, you will in some way change how your audience feels about what you have to say. So the book wants you to know that even though your intended audience can be misjudged, you too can misjudge the actual effect of your message to the audience. So a good way to overcome this is when you're brainstorming is to write your outline. It's one to three sentences and it summarizes and describes the overall message that you want to convey. The next tool in your toolbox for rhetoric is context. So what is context? Google defines it as the circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement, or idea in terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. And the book refers to context as two distinct but related aspects of any work or message you're trying to convey. And that is one, the relationship among your words, sentences, and paragraphs, and two, the larger societal situation in which the piece was written. So what do those two definitions mean? And the reason why I chose the Google definition is because Google gives you a general broad statement of the words that you are trying to learn for the MCAT, whereas the MCAT prep book goes into deeper detail about how those words are utilized. Because a lot of concepts in the MCAT prep books, their definitions are geared towards the MCAT. So just like anything in life, things have agendas, messages, and they're all trying to get you to believe a certain thing one way or the other. So a part of context is your surrounding information. This is your use of words, so your word choice, and the intent of each word that can be discerned by reading the surrounding sentence. Now, I just read that word for word from the book, and I'm just gonna tell you right now, I'm an English major, and you can't teach someone how to write well with these types of books. I mean that as in when you break writing down to something so formulaic, if that's even a word, so just to repeat myself, the term context often refers to surrounding information. The definition or intent of a word can often be discerned by reading surrounding sentence. Now, a better way just to say that, that I just read, is that context relies on the word you use and the words you use around it. That's 
basically the simplified version of what this book is trying to get you to to think. Maybe maybe the person who wrote this book wants you to think so hard that you think, wow, I spent a good deal of money for a good deal of content. No, good books should make you not think that much. Shitty writers make you think a lot. So that's my that's my two cents, three cents, whatever, dimes, nickels. But you get it. And the next thing is the societal situation in which your message is being conveyed. So do me a favor and look up one of your favorite speeches or a favorite speech that you remember. So whatever, let's have fun with this. There's a scene where Romeo is stalking Juliet on the balcony. This is the scene for the wherefore art thou Romeo. And I'm going to play it for you right now. Having some business, to entreat her eyes to twinkle in their spheres till they return. See how she leans her cheek upon her hand. Oh, that I were a glove upon that hand that I might touch that cheek. And there you go. You are now creeped out. So obviously Romeo is infatuated by Julia at this point. And so what is the context that Romeo is conveying? Well, let's look at it with the definition that the book goes into. Romeo's choice of words, how Julia is leaning over the balcony. Now, I'm not going to memorize this word for word, but she leans forward and her hand is on her cheek and Romeo replies, Oh, for thou I weren't that glove of that hand upon her cheek or something like that. Meaning Romeo is saying that in the context of where he he's at right now, looking up at Juliet. Her hand is on her cheek, right? Well, Romeo doesn't want to be her hand. He doesn't want to embody Juliet. Romeo wants to be an outside, something exterior to Juliet, like a glove, something that she would still cherish and that would be personable to Juliet herself. And when Juliet touches her cheek with the glove hand, then Romeo will get to experience that touch. So essentially, Juliet gives him the permission to touch. He doesn't touch her, but but she leads him with her hand. He's the glove, and together they touch her cheek. So the context here is obviously Romeo's in love, and he's staring at Julia, and he wants to touch her, but he wants to also respect her. And this falls into the second part of context, the societal context. And in the societal context, at that time and era, chivalry was a major source of what defined a man's status as a part of the nobility. Now, these two contexts, when they combine, we have an overall message that Romeo is infatuated by Juliet, but he will respect her as a nobleman should, and he will only touch if she allows him to touch, because that is how you normally do courtship in that era and time. What was this? The late 1400s? Early 1500s? Yeah, and so that, that is context. We will look at another one that is less complex. This one is a childhood classic, and I will read it for you myself. I do not like them, Sam. I I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Would you like them here or there? I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them. Sam, I am. Would you like them in a house? Would you like them with a mouse? I do not like them in a house. I do not like them with a mouse. I do not like them here or there. I do not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them. Sam, I am. So, what is 
is the context here. The choices of words, it's very simple. Dr. Seuss writes in a simplistic manner, but his, his imagery and his, and what we were talking about earlier, his voice as an author, as a, as a writer, it, it amplifies itself. So I don't know who this person is, but there's this guy named Sam and he's just trying to get this guy to eat some green eggs and ham. And the guy's like, I don't want them, right? So throughout the whole context of the story I read, the snippet, we get words that indicate negativity. I would not like them. I would not like them. I do not like. 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 And after those I do not likes, there's an emphasis on another reason why Sam I am should literally just understand that, but he doesn't. So in a way, the person wants to convey a single message. Leave me alone. I don't want your green eggs in him. But he uses it with many other messages attached. So I do not like them in a house with a mouse here or there, anywhere. I don't like green eggs and ham. Sam I am. So again, the context here, the word choice is there's one overall message and the other multiple messages that branch out all lead back to basically a phone message. And the message is, and the message is essentially leading back to the one overall main theme message that he should just leave him alone. He doesn't want green eggs and ham. And we all know he ends up liking green eggs and ham, but that's not the point here. The point is we are on the part two of context and that part looks at the societal aspects of context. And now this book, it was written for a certain age audience, an age group, kid. And so the societal context that we're talking about here is in terms of learning your social behaviors. So the guy is telling Sam many, many times he doesn't want to do something. And Sam, being curious like most kids are, instead of saying do it and forcing him to, he looks for an alternative and asks him, well, what if this happens? Would you do it then? Or what about this? Would you do it then? And of course he replies, no, he doesn't want green eggs and ham. He doesn't like them. Sam I am. So I hope this is really making sense because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I'm kidding. I'm just trying to essentially explain the idea of context in a more simplistic manner than the example passages that I'm going to read in about five minutes. So we're going to go over the rhetorical analysis section once again. We have a message. The message is written by an author and that message has a goal. And the goal is to convey something to the audience. And while that is happening, there the audience provides one source of context, whereas the author author provides another source of context. The author provides the words for the context, the words surrounding the words, the meanings of the words. Whereas the society, their implications apply the comprehension and the interpretation of those words. Just to repeat one more time, the author creates a message which has half of the context in the forms of words and their relationships with one another. And then the author with that message has a goal to drive home to an audience. And the audience's societal interpretation of of that message slash goal creates the other part of context, which is the societal interpretation of context. Now that we've established that, let us continue on for some example passages. This is going to require me to read, but that's cool. Before we, we get into that, let's let's talk about one more thing. That is the Aristilian rhetoric. Now, there are three strategies in Aristilian rhetoric, and Aristotle was this Greek philosopher guy that relied on communication skills to convince his audience of why a bigger rock would fall to the ground quicker than a smaller rock, which isn't true. Gravity, remember? Okay, speed of gravity, everything acts on it at 9.82 meters per second squared. Now, now the Aristilian rhetoric contains 
means three appeals, Logos, Ethos, and Pathos. And this means that it is part of the Aristilian triad, which is just parallels on a rhetorical rhetoric. So what does that mean? That means take a triangle and then draw one triangle at the bottom corner of the triangle and then draw another triangle at the bottom corner and then you'll have like three triangles with a center and that is your Aristilian triad. It's like a Venn diagram basically but with triangles. And so what is Logos? Logos is when you appeal to logic. So we use reasoning to convince your audience. So like I convinced you earlier 9.82 meters per second squared is the speed of gravity and everything acts on it. So a small rock and a big rock falls to the ground at the same time. Now my ethos here basically picks apart Aristilian thought and I use that in a way to convey that just because Aristotle is an authority figure doesn't mean you should believe him. And now the pathos of what I was speaking essentially that means the emotions I'm appealing to is that I don't know listen to my voice it sounds super sexy as hell. No I'm kidding it sounds super confident and it sounds like it knows what it's talking about and I would bet my life that gravity exists on earth at this very second I'm speaking. See I know how to lawyer up. Anyway so that is it, the Aristilian triad. Pathos, Logos, and Ethos. Um, sorry, it's not German, it's Greek. So logic, ethics, and emotion. Always argue with those things. Now let's read some passages. I gotta turn on my reading lamp. And now we will read. Passage 1. Aristotle's brilliance is further on display in the study of rhetoric. The canonical rhetoric, much in the fashion of his numerous other groundbreaking treatises, lays the foundation for an entire academic discipline. Elucidating rhetoric's multifarious nature as Aristotle employs a series of clarifying distinctions. Thus, Aristotle demonstrates the vast scope of rhetoric by calling it the antistrobe or counterpart to dialectic. While the dialectician attempts to determine what is actually true or ethically good, the rhetorician tries to persuade others of the truth or goodness of something. Among his most remarkable insights, it's Aristotle's vision of three modes of persuasion. When the orator draws upon rational argumentation to convince an audience, he or she is employing logos or logical persuasion. It's speakers wish to establish credibility to demonstrate that they know what they're talking about and that they are not being deceptive, they use ethos or the ethical mode. Finally, pathos or emotional persuasion is utilized whenever a speaker attempts to influence the audience's feelings to incline its members and blah blah. blah. Last sentence. Of course, Aristotle's, Aristotle in his wisdom recognizes that effective oratory almost inevitably displays characteristics of all three. So we just talked about this. I wish I skipped ahead to another example. So what does this thing even say? Well, first off, you can like sit there and think of, okay, who's the author? Who's the audience? Who is, what's the message? What's the context, right? So let's just do that quickly. Now, who's the author? The author is some guy who's talking about Aristotle. That's all I know from reading this. What's the goal? The goal is to tell you something that Aristotle did. It's probably to educate you about something because it doesn't seem like it's trying to persuade you on anything. It's just trying to tell you about something. 
So the context here, the words that it uses was words that basically describe rhetoric and the three things we talked about earlier, ethos, pathos, and ethos. Wait, ethos, pathos, and logos. Yeah. And so that message with that context goes to the audience, which is us. And what what is our societal frame of mind. Well, we want to do well in the MCAT. And this passage is telling us an example of Aristilian triads and the Aristilian thoughts and the Aristilian triangles and, and whatnot and how they are used to interject in whatever, understand your way in literature or rhetoric. I don't know. It was really wordy. Lots of jargon. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, that's, that's it. That's the bottom line. I just wanted to teach you about rhetoric. Now I'm going to read passage two. Another area in which Aristotle was influential in the field of rhetoric, in his book entitled Rhetoric, Aristotle employs his typical approach of characterization, delineating the various aspects of the subject of inquiry. According to Aristotle, rhetoric is the practical complement to the more theoretical dialectic. The latter concerns matters of truth and goodness, while the former concerns the means of persuasion. This persuasion is accomplished by using one or more of three basic modes or methods, logos, ethos, and pathos. Logos, or logical persuasion, relies upon reason, employing both deductive proofs, syllogisms, and enthymemes, and inductive inferences made, whatever. Ethos, or ethical persuasion, aims to draw upon the credibility of the speaker. Lastly, pathos, or pathetic persuasion, sways individuals by playing upon their emotions, putting them in. Okay, this is basically telling you the same shit. Um, yeah, so this is what the book tells you. The first passage, the author shows that he favors Aristotle. Okay. Okay, that's exactly what I just said. Oh, I see. Okay, now let's 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 analyze the second passage. What does the author want you to know? Well, the author's telling you something, and he uses the words but a lot. Like he explains what logos is, but then he says something bad about it, and then ethos, and then something he spells bad about it, and then he says something about pathos, and then he says but will frequently emphasize one over the others. So it seems like this author is just trying to tell you how it is and he doesn't want you to accept or not accept what he says the author whoever he or she is wants you to just absorb and understand and learn and so what is the message the message is the same as before but the context here is different the context here shows the goal of the author and that context shows that the author just wants to create thinking. Now as the audience, we are listening and we have to see what does the author want us to believe. And the author wants us to believe in basically there was someone named Aristotle and he came up with these ideas, right? So in the MCAT prep book, the second passage, I'm about to read it now. Uh, I read this first line, so I'm not going to lie to you, but then the other stuff I didn't. The second passage is devoid of the author's personal views and presents the information in an objective manner. That is, the message of the second example is more purely focused on providing accurate information about the Aristotelian classification of rhetoric without including implicit opinion. The tone is more serious and strictly informative, and the author seems to have minimized her personal voice or has a very dry and factual voice. This type of text may appear in an encyclopedia or past the textbook, in which the goal is simply to provide facts. I didn't read after the first sentence on the explanation for the first passage, but 
the author the entire time talks about Aristotle's brilliance in the first passage example and how remarkable everything is. The author basically praises Aristotle and the author obviously is pushing the agenda of why you should speak more like Aristotle. Fuck that. But anyway, yeah, we have time for the last passage. And this one I will take seriously because I know I'm probably pissing you off right now. Passage 3. Despite the advances of later thinkers, Aristotle continues to have a significant impact on rhetorical studies. His rhetoric is all too often cited on providing a foundation for the entire discipline. Notwithstanding Aristotle's penchant for simplistic classifications, one example of such is his makeshift division of all academic disciplines into two categories, theoretical, dialectic, and practical rhetoric. Aristotle contends that the latter operates in only three distinct ways. Logos, the use of reason to demonstrate to an audience the truth that dialectic purportedly uncovers. Ethos, persuasion that exploits the speaker's apparent trustworthiness and expertise. And pathos, or emotional manipulation of the audience. Fortunately, Aristotle does not deny common sense, granting that most persuasion is a mixture of the three although one wonders why he does not leave open the possibility of alternative methods. Now, if, you, if you're good at predicting movies, you know that we first went over something that praises and something that was not, something that was just strictly objective. And now, obviously this one disagrees with Aristotle, right? So who's our author? Author disagrees with Aristotle. What is the goal that the author wants to convey? Well, let's look at the context of the author first. The context of the author, the passage contains literally lots of negative ass words like emotional manipulation, apparent trustworthiness, and expertise. Persuasion that exploits. makeshift division of all academic disciplines into two categories. Aristotle contends that the latter only operates three distinct ways. Aristotle does not deny common sense, granting that most persuasion is a mixture of the three, although one wonders why he does not leave open the possibility of alternative methods. So this author is telling you, Yo, Aristotle came up with these three things, this Aristotelian thought, this Aristotelian triad, these triangles. Well, shit, there's circles and squares in the universe, everyone. There's other ways to argue shit. Like, with curse words. And so, that's the context of the message. There's other ways to do shit. Don't listen to Aristotle. Well, question Aristotle, like any good philosopher would. And so, as our audience, we absorb it and we get the societal interpretation and the second part of that context. And the second part of that context is this author essentially appeals to our modern day understanding of free will. The author appeals to us to reject authority, to reject things the way it is, and to question things like all good medicine and science majors should do, you know? Anyway, what does the book 
safe. In contrast, the final passage is rather dismissive. Despite the advances of later thinkers, Aristotle continues to have a significant impact too often cited. Aristotle's penchant for simplistic classifications, and fortunately, Aristotle does not deny common sense. Okay, so the author trivializes the contributions made by Aristotle and questions the philosopher's ideology. Such text could be an excerpt from an article in an academic journal in which the author was focusing on one of Aristotle's successors or providing criticisms of Aristotle. Either way, the tone in this piece is critical. Yeah, it sounds like my parents. Pretty fucking critical. As the author's opposition is evident, the author's voice is often too obvious, as in the first example, the author's goal is unmistakably to downplay or rebuke Aristotle's importance while describing the classifications of rhetoric. Oh, what a mouthful of bullshit. But, as you know, that is it. So, essentially, this is, I'm going to summarize everything. The MCAT is made up of the car section, the critical analysis reasoning section, is made up of passages. You read those passages, then you under- try to understand those passages because you need comprehension and to critically think. And there are three surface levels. There's like the shallow level of understanding, the middle level, and then the deep ass analytical, let's make up fake information shit level. And so once you get that, then you get to understand your audience. And you understand your audience by first understanding your author. Your author has a goal, an agenda. And that agenda is in that message. That message is made up of context. The first context is the words and essentially the word choices that the author uses to try to convey something to the audience. The second form of context is from the audience itself. And that is how the audience conceptualizes what is being said in the message to them. So societal interpretation is the second part. And then in rhetoric, there are three things that Aristotle loved to do, and that was with logos, pathos, and ethos, which means logic. Appeal to logic, appeal to emotion, appeal to ethics. And as a good person who argues things, you need all three. Unless you're a scientist, then you just need one, and you write objectively, like the second example we talked about. So, this concludes the first episode of the Cars section. I hope you bear with me through this, because I tend to be a rebel when it comes to people telling you how to write, and how to think, and how to interpret stuff. All of us reading this, if you just keep a cynical perspective of everything, you realize the author just wants to tell you something and to push an agenda. Literally every politician on this planet, we should be used to it by now. Every commercial, every Nike, Gatorade, Apple commercial literally just tries to push an agenda, right? So that's what this first section was trying to tell you. This first section was trying to tell you that you have the ability to understand what a message is made out of. You don't have to know it word for word, like how the author of this prep book describes it. You just have to understand the author that is writing the message. You are usually always the audience. 
And so the context is rather important, but if it has negative words, it's probably against. If it's positive words, it's probably for. If there aren't any emotional words attached to it, no, no pathos words, then it's probably like a journal article and it's, it tries to be objective. So what can you do? You can do this. You can literally pick up a children's book, read it, and do break down the same thing. Who's the author? What's the goal? What's the context? What's the message? Who's the audience? How do they interpret that message? Or you just go on Facebook and then you scroll through and then you read everyone's messages. And literally you can do the same thing. What's this person's message? Okay, who's this person? What's their message? What's their goal? What's the context? Like, what words are they using? I'm the audience, or are they addressing it to someone else, like a rant? So how's their audience gonna interpret this when they read it? And there you go. You are now as smart as Aristotle in terms of rhetoric. So, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Doomsday Prepper's Guide to the MCAT cars section because I want to get into some some more science like biochemistry or, or organic chemistry or some physics that's all we got left over so the sooner we pass through this stuff the quicker we can get to the what I would say more important stuff I'm sorry I'm an English major and a bio major but I guess the most important thing when it comes to reading stuff and to understanding stuff, you can be smart. You can you can know all of your periodic table and your organic chemistry reactions, right? But I guess reading is a form of emotional intelligence, and that's what you need to develop for the MCAT. It's probably easy for most people who read a lot. But you'd be surprised about how you are going to encounter doctors or scientists in the field of medicine and scientific research who lack that emotional intelligence to connect with another human being, especially a human being of the general public. This is why the entire scope of the March for Science events, the last Two, three years, four years, whatever. This is why they keep talking about the disconnect between the public and science. Because while doctors and scientists were off in their labs and writing prescriptions for their patients, they avoided the general public and they thought the public would just believe in everything they hear. Well, the general public is made to not believe everything they hear, so they will listen to usually someone who is against the status quo and this is what i call the health guru like the people who are anti-vax or the people who want you to just rub essential oils on your giant ass tumor don't do that or the people who say chemicals in our food are killing us well let's tell them this water is a chemical 
Water is one oxygen bonded to two hydrogens, and that's a chemical. Everything is a chemical. You're made up of a bag of chemicals. This is from the first section of the biology part. But yeah, that's it. That is my rant, and that is how I hope to inspire you to continue studying the car section of the MCAT. Next is probably going to be something in terms of chemistry or physics, because that's literally what we have to do next. All right, thanks, and have a great whatever day, night, afternoon, dimensionless vortex void that you're in cyber reality i don't know just have a good day just be just be fulfilled literally and be a good person all right i'm out